So one of the features of ultra processed food is it's soft. Soft food, and most UPF is soft and dry, we consume it quickly because it's very energy dense. It is often sugary and fatty and there's no water in it. We consume calories at a rate that our bodies can't keep up with. So we don't get the fullness signal from our gut until we've already eaten too much. And some people think the food is is so it's been so disintegrated before we eat it. It's actually digested before it gets to the bit of the gut that releases the hormones that tell us to stop eating. Well, that's the voice of leading academic, award-winning broadcaster and practising NHS doctor Chris Van Tullican. He is lifting the lid on how ultra-processed foods, UPFs, are really affecting our bodies. This is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all to have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle and I'm on a bit of a mission to find ways for us all to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Well, ultra-processed foods, UPFs, as we'll refer to them from here on in, now make up 60% or more of the average diet in the UK. And we consume a shocking eight kilograms of additives a year. Eight kilos just of additives. That is massive. Well, Chris has written an absolutely brilliant, but in many ways petrifying book called Ultra Processed People, examining what UPFs are really doing to our bodies. If you feel that you just can't stop eating these kinds of foods, then you might not be to blame. It was absolutely fascinating chatting to Chris about why exercise and willpower can't prevent ill health. It is coming down so often to the foods that we're eating and what responsibility policymakers really do need to be taking in providing alternative ways for us to eat. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chris, a very warm welcome. You are a practicing NHS doctor, as well as making fantastic TV and audio documentaries, looking particularly at the foods that we're eating. Obviously, you're interested in health in human bodies. But how did your fascination with UPFs start? First of all, such a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, there were two kind <laughs> of catalysts. I think one of the things is I'm a I'm an infectious diseases doctor and a tropical medicine specialist. And that often confuses people because they don't seem obviously linked to nutrition. But I spent a lot of time working in complex humanitarian emergencies in uh, Central African Republic and Myanmar and, and Pakistan. And in those contexts, I saw a huge number of children harmed and killed by the aggressive marketing of baby food, uh, which their parents couldn't afford. There was no clean mm. water to make up and they couldn't read the packet to make it properly. And that sort of stimulated this interest in these deep determinants of our health. And particularly now, a lot of my research is focused on how corporations affect human health in good ways and in bad ways. It's not it's not yeah. I don't have an anti-corporate agenda. So those experiences looking after children who, who often died of infections because they'd been malnourished, that was really where it where it started going. And my my twin brother has been, you know, pretty severely affected by obesity for much of his adult life. Um, that's also been a big sort of personal narrative in 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 mm. this is is the struggle that so many of us face with with weight and diet. Yeah. 
Isn't that fascinating that he's a twin and yet his body is reacting differently? You know, I'm sure you're aware of Tim Spector, you know, the twin study and, and the role of the microbiome, which, you know, maybe we'll get on to with all of this as well. I mean, so we, we I've known Tim for a long time. We, we're in Tim's twin study. Yes. <laughs> and at the time right. we entered the twin study, we had the biggest weight difference of any pair of twins that he was... He, he'd ever met, I think. Really? Yeah. What a dubious distinction to have. So it, it was it was intriguing because what we know about genes for obesity is, is obesity is, is genetic. Um, there are genetic risk factors. Zand and I both have most of the major genetic risk factors. But those genes can't be expressed if you live in particular environments. So we mm. know that living in the UK, if you live with income, if you don't live in stress or poverty, and you live in a place where you can access good food, your obesity genes tend not to do very much. But those same genes in a context of poverty, deprivation, those same genes in America, which is where Zahn moved, um, are allowed to, to sort of flourish, yeah. Well, which of course brings in, I guess, the UPFs here because a staggering number of foods, the huge proportion in America um, affected with UPFs. So I I think actually before we get too far ahead of ourselves, should we define UPFs? What makes them different from simply PFs, you know, from from processed processed foods? foods. So so ultra processed foods. They're in a distinct category, aren't they? They are. And it's not a... It's not a casual definition. It's a formal scientific definition that's very widely recognised by lots of governments, by the United Nations, UNICEF, uh, World Health Organisation. So this is a a proper scientific category that's been studied. There's a long scientific definition. It runs to several pages because it encompasses so many different processing techniques. But it boils down to if it's wrapped in plastic and it contains an ingredient that you don't have in your kitchen at home, like an emulsifier, a stabilizer, a, a sweetener of any kind, flavorings, mm-hmm. then it's an ultra-processed food. And this is right. a category of food we've been studying now for more than a decade. The definition was invented in Brazil in 2010. And it was invented because the scientists in Brazil noticed something that no one else had really noticed before, because the obesity pandemic crept up on us in the UK, and we, we didn't collect any nutritional information mm. until until it was already a huge public health problem. In Brazil, they saw that purchases of sugar and oil were falling as people were gaining weight. And this was a paradox because, of course, traditional nutritional advice has always said, you know, cut down on sugar, cut down on oil in order to maintain health. And so they tried to define the category of foods that, that oil and sugar were being replaced with. So people were still eating their oil and sugar, but they were in now packaged products. And so the the definition arrived in 2010, Carlos Montero and his team. And since then, we've really had hundreds of papers. So the, most of the, I don't know, I've got to be a bit careful what I say here, but the faddy things that come out of media doctors mm. are often based on one study, you know. Mm-hmm. So and, and so whether it's sugar or particular diets or whatever it is, there's, there's a single study and it's often very kind of exciting and appealing and, so we all embark on this project. This isn't a faddish thing. You know, we, we've really got hundreds of studies and the groups that study this are at very respectable universities. You know, I'm at, I'm at University College in London and I have colleagues at Harvard and in Marseille and in Brazil, in McGill in Canada, Oxford, Imperial. The big institutions have, have done a, a huge amount of work on this. And we're th- th- these are very robust data that have been well replicated to use the to lapse into some science mm-hmm. speak. Well, that is good to know. And is it the combination of all these things together? Or is is there one particular group? You know, you mentioned emulsifiers, for example. You know, are there certain ingredients that are being included that are driving this obesity epidemic? Or is it a cocktail? It's, it's such an, an important question. So first of all, there are two separate problems that ultra-processed food are linked with. There's, there's weight gain... But then there's lots of other health problems. So it's it's not just weight gain. They also seem to be associated strongly with inflammatory bowel disease, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease like heart attacks and strokes, uh, dementia, anxiety, depression, and early death, as well as lots of cancers. So there's a very wide variety of outcomes. And we don't understand why this food is causing all these problems in a lot of detail, but we are pretty sure that the additives are just one of the many, many problems. So if people are interested in it, one of the proposals in this, I've, I've written this book, mm. Ultra Processed People. 
And the invitation in the book is to keep eating the food, keep eating ultra processed food, because you will eat quite a lot of it. We all eat a lot of it whilst you read and you learn about what it's doing. <laughs> and so I'm, yeah. you know, and, and, and there's virtually um, six chapters on the different ways in which these products affect us. So one of the features of ultra processed food is it's soft. So if you think of supermarket bread mm. compared to like sourdough bread or any traditional bread, traditional mm -hmm. bread is hard, it's chewy, it has substance, it's often got some moisture in it. Supermarket bread is bone dry, it's spongy, it's an emulsified foam. And it's not that it's particularly poisonous or that the emulsifiers are causing a problem, but soft food, and most UPF is soft and dry, we consume it quickly because it's very energy dense. It is often sugary and fatty and there's no water in it. We consume calories at a rate that our bodies can't keep up with. So we don't get the fullness signal from our gut until we've already eaten too much. And some too people much. think the food is, mm. is so it's been so disintegrated before we eat it. It's actually digested before it gets to the bit of the gut that releases the hormones that tell us to stop eating. So that's right. that's one way that's nothing to do with additives. We do think some of the additives are, there's some early science that that's, that's a bit worrying. So there's good data from mm -hmm. mice and rodents that the emulsifiers affect the friendly bugs that are inside us and that lots of, other, lots of other of the additives seem to drive excess consumption and inflammation. There's the plastics in the packaging. When you put that plastic in the microwave, we think there's leaching of, of chemicals in, into the food that we don't understand, but there are fertility concerns. So there's this laundry list of different possible effects, but... For me, the most important thing and the, the really interesting part of the definition is that these are foods invented for profit. And so they yeah. are engineered to drive excess consumption because the more you eat, the quicker you buy the next product and the more money the companies make them. So this isn't a sort of cynical conspiracy. It's just a very simple bit of market economics. If you, yes. if you have two formulations of a breakfast cereal and people eat a bit more of box A than they do of box B, and this is how... The cereals are all tested on focus groups. If they eat more mm -hmm. of one box, that's the box that goes to market. That's the one. And it's been, this has been done for, yeah. this, this has been refined for sort of decades now. So we've got this, these very addictive products. Uh, that's fascinating what you say about texture and, and soft foods and, of course, things that we're drawn to. And I guess those perhaps most at risk, the vulnerable, you know, young children right. because they're easy to eat, older parents, you know, who have difficulty chewing. I had my parents to stay not long ago and I served them some homemade granola, which is kind of one of my favourite treats at the weekend, full of nuts and seeds and all sorts of things. And they complained hugely yeah. about it because they just found it really hard on their teeth. So, <laughs> so the chewing stuff is amazing. Um, mm. what, what we're sure is because from a very, you know, I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so my kids also complain if you, if you serve them stuff that's chewy. Mm. And we have lots of data now that our faces are shrinking. So with each passing decades, our faces are getting smaller. Our jaw bones get smaller and our top jaws, our maxillary bones get smaller. And that's because we're not chewing our foods. When, when muscles pull on bones, it makes them grow. And that's why most of us have had wisdom teeth taken out. That's why most of us have these dental problems like malocclusion that require braces. Our jaws are too small yeah. for our teeth. So that's that's yeah. another sort of that's a whole separate set of effects is is it's changing the structure of our faces that's fascinating and i remember reading was it was it western price was he a, a dentist who worked in ancient tribes and he was very impressed by the the width of and the strength of their teeth and what they were eating if if it, it, um i th i think i've referenced one of his papers in the book or certainly i i've read papers mm. that reference his work yes i mean a lot of this work was done on on indigenous communities who made a very very rapid transition to uh, these very soft foods yeah well, you can you can monitor yeah. very very quickly that without any genetic changes the faces shrink and that the teeth become much smaller so you know eating chewy food is not something we like to do necessarily instinctively um and the softness also may be contributing to addiction and a food addiction i i don't know if you get a lot of comments on this it's it's a slippery thing to talk about but around about half the people listening will recognize that there are products that although they may know they're not very good for them or they're associated with weight gain they find it really hard to stop eating and i am yeah, like a fondant fancy like oh a fondant goodness. fancy or, yeah. or, or or like biscuits pizza mm. fries burgers almost all the stuff and i am one of those people i i struggle to stop eating i have an addictive relationship with these products and we think for the people who are addicted, 
It's always ultra processed food that you get addicted to. And those products are as addictive as cigarettes or drugs of abuse or alcohol or gambling. So they're, they're really, really addictive if you have a genetic predisposition. And part of that is to do with the speed at which you get the calories into you, that you get a very quick reward. And there's, there's a lot of data saying that that's one of the things that drives addiction. Gosh, so you're getting that dopamine hit, if you like, and that, that feel good. I don't know, I guess it's a surge of insulin, is it, that's giving you a, a bit of a sugar rush, a bit of a high? The reward that we get from food seems to be very related to its nutritional content. And one of the features of most addictive substances is that you consume the addictive molecules fast. So mm -hmm. uh, cigarettes are a way of delivering nicotine very, very quickly. Cocaine, if it's snorted, it's similarly, you get a very quick delivery. Now, if you chew tobacco or you chew coca leaves, if you drink shots versus, you know, light ale, the mm -hmm. speed of delivery of the drug is important. And we think right. that sugar, fat, protein aren't addictive, but they are the molecules that are driving the association of, of reward from gut to brain. There, there is there's some oddities with that because, of course, some people find themselves incredibly addicted to the diet drinks, which have no calories in them at all, and people will yes. end up consuming eight, nine. So we don't... We, this is one of the things is we've all become part of this experiment we didn't consent for. No one understands right. why people yeah. drink eight tins of diet drink a day um, and... There's very little research on it. The research there is is broadly funded by the soft drink companies. Um, yes. And so, you know, that's part of why I'm saying, you know, do the experiment for yourself and, and keep mm -hmm. keep eating and drinking. But start to start to think carefully about how when you eat them, how do these foods make you feel? Yeah. Talking about soft drinks and diet drinks, I have looked at a little bit of research. And again, as you say, it is hard to find showing or potentially alluding to the addictive nature of aspartame, which seems to be prevalent as, as the sort of sugar-free sweetener of choice. Have you seen that? Do you think there's an addictive quality to it? I think most of the, the problems with the sweeteners, it's not entirely clear if sweeteners are better or worse than sugar when it comes to drinks. That to me is really troubling, that we can't mm. show that there are a lot, but I mean, it should be a perfect swap, right? Most people can't mm -hmm. tell the difference and it's zero calorie. That the soft drinks that have zero calories aren't associated with weight loss indicates we've misunderstood something really severely about the way our bodies work. So one of the things that we think ultra processed foods do is they tell our body lies so if you yes. put sweet taste in the mouth your mm. body's expecting sugar when that sugar doesn't arrive the hormonal milieu inside your body which is broadly an insulin spike but there's a lot more other stuff that goes on as well when that sugar doesn't arrive you you may well end up going and seeking sugar elsewhere or you may eat more of the fries that are going with your soft drink or more mm -hmm. of the crisps so um that's probably a feature common to most of the sweeteners, whether or not they're natural. So a lot of the sweeteners now people will recognise, oh, they're natural, you know, there's a natural yeah, plant. Yeah, that, that kind of stuff. They're probably not much better. That said, I think with some of the sweeteners we see with saccharin, with aspartame, there are also effects on the microbiome that may drive increased appetite and there may be direct effects on the brain. And the yes. sweet receptors yeah. aren't just on your tongue. You've got them all over your body. So you've got sweet receptors on your cells that detect sweetness, sweet molecules on your bladder and your kidneys, throughout your brain, in your cardiovascular system. And we've mm. never we've never done any research to say, well, what is the effect of putting non-caloric yeah. sweetness into your body on all this stuff? So I don't want to give everyone an anxiety. Mm. The sweeteners are broadly <laughs> safe in terms of toxicology. But if yeah. you're wondering what to serve to your kids, I would yeah. I would not serve them either a sugary drink or a sweetened drink or a sweetened drink really interesting and you know it's interesting how some foods and drinks have this kind of halo of health if you like around mm. them so you know you, you talk about diet drinks you kind of feel almost sort of more virtuous potentially I mean some would I personally don't have them in the house but that's you know that's that's me but yes yeah, some people think oh I'll just have a diet coke or whatever or coke zero these foods do seem to have very good PR you know if you look at social media, Instagram, for example, you know, health influencers 
as such will post pictures of plant-based milkshakes even if they come out of cartons and these faux meat burgers they wouldn't dare post a chicken you know, a picture of a chicken nugget but am i right in saying that it's all still kind of junk food really it's all upf with, with any i think that's a pretty good um synopsis yeah i my anxiety with it is it one of the things the food industry are doing is that they're pushing back quite hard on on the book the book the book has got Fairly... I was going to ask you whether you have to wear a flat jacket now. Well, when you go out. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's it's intriguing what's happening, and I, I sort of knew this would happen because I've had I've worked in academically. My work is now on how these companies affect our health, so I've been doing this for a little while. But the the book is going down well, partly because I think people are quite sold on the idea that these foods are addictive. They, they, we, we, people have been eating them long enough to be suspicious of this, and the food industry are starting to push back one of the ways they inform us of course is by funding all these influencers and one of the techniques they are using and there there was a big article that came out last week in one of the newspapers it was in a couple of the newspapers where a big nutrition foundation said look ultra processed foods we don't need to worry about them some of them are perfectly healthy like (laughs) baked beans on toast you know how could anyone say that this was harmful and so they're starting to cleverly yeah. paint me as someone who wants women back in the kitchen wants to make life yeah. inconvenient now lots or is, of it, or is an extremist or is an extremist now there are lots of ultra processed foods which in moderation are completely fine and i don't think anyone should worry too much about baked beans on toast i've i've fed in the last few days of my kids have eaten baked beans on toast and fish fingers for dinner you know we we Mm. don't have to panic about it i do think that we should be concerned that one of the dishes we think of as really healthy in our national diet is baked Mm. beans with flavorings and modified maize maize starch out of a tin on emulsified supermarket bread those shouldn't be our national food culture. They're fine when you're in a hurry. If you're a working mm-hmm. parent, you know, it's, you know, they're not poisonous. But we should worry about a food environment where the idea of actually baking beans yourself and serving them on real bread is yes. so completely bizarre to people. And that is not the fault of individuals. That is a fault of the food system. By the way, the nutrition charity that promoted this message was, of course, funded by every single major ultra-processed yeah. food corporation that you can name. Like, name a food company that you associate mm-hmm. with bad health, they fund that nutrition foundation. But they also fund, you know, diabetes charities and British Nutrition Foundation and, and research. And, you know, I mean, this, you know, it's almost has ever been thus. And I've been at the sharp end in years gone by. I remember campaigning against trans fats and and hydrogenated you know sunflower spreads back in the day and absolutely being taken apart for it you know these these guys they have huge amounts of money and resources and extremely clever PR companies and you know you're very brave in in putting your head above the parapet with all of this because a lot of doctors I know who campaign against sugar for example in years gone by you know they have their Wikipedia pages permanently tampered with they are, you know, called charlatans and and tried to almost be deplatformed. That's you know I mean? so. There, 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 there is an agenda here, isn't there? It is a real thing. My my colleagues in Central and South America have been physically attacked by food industry representatives. There's much wow. more corruption in those countries, and the, and the food industry is much more linked to government. But yeah, I hadn't thought of the Wikipedia stuff until you until you publish the mm-hmm. book. You can't quite imagine the ways in which. You're going to be taken on. Now, I thought, of course, I might become a sort of brave martyr to this cause. You know, <laughs> I'd get my day in court. You know, they'd they'd sue yes. me. They'd bring out an injunction uh-huh. in the book and it would all come out and I'd be a hero. What I'm realising is that's not the way it's going to play out. What they're going yeah, to do is these, these little mm. things. It's, it's never going mm-hmm. to be a food company. It's going to be, you know, they're going to be multiple companies away. It's the modification of the Wikipedia page, uh, vexatious mm-hmm. complaints sure. to my professional bodies. And I'm still... Yep. So, so I am... Yep worried about this I, I think what I have is some uh now how to discuss any of this without sounding pompous I mean I'm I'm reasonably credible I think because I don't take any money from industry so I make it yes. I take a very significant pay cut to not work with the food industry I yeah. I mean media doctors and pe- mm-hmm. you know it's worth look up your me- look up your media doctors and your influencers and see if you can figure out who mm-hmm. pays them it's not it's not easy but I get offered for, for example, to present a scientific paper to some journalists 
you know, about, I don't know, about some dairy products, I, I could make 20 grand an hour for doing that. Now, I can't do that yeah. every day, but it, I, you know, if you don't, if oh, you, it's, you're, it's you're turning down hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. Yeah, I, I'm well aware of it. And I have worked with many TV doctors or been in the same room as many media medics who do exactly that. And it's very hard to figure out and, and often even the broadcasters don't know or their employers, their publishers, because it's it's hidden. It's it's undercover. I mean, you, you've uh, and, done this work for declared. a long time. You know, you've you've partnered mm. with many of the organisers and the Soil Association have been yeah. shown incredible leadership in this area. They're very on top of these conflicts. And you've you've, of course, worked with them. Mm. And yeah. I think almost the single change that needs to happen and I'm, I'm really pleased you sort of instinctively get this, is that we need to start thinking of the food companies as we do the tobacco industry. Now, this doesn't mean we treat ultra-processed food like cigarettes or we, we demonise those who use it or we have to put it all in plain packaging or tax it. But we do have to recognise if we're going to make food policy, we can't have most of the major charities that influence the way we think about food paid no. for by the industry that create the problem. And at the moment, the child activism charities, the foundations, all, I mean, you you know, you, I, I, I never like to name the, I name, I well, name I mean, people in my book. organisations, all sorts, oh, because they get the, the halo effect yeah. of being associated by sponsoring. Yeah. And they're, and they're um, funding all the basic research and the media mm-hmm. doctors and all those influencers. Everything you know about food and all the information is filtered mm-hmm. through the food companies. And they're clever at making the message quite dilute. So they don't say ultra processed food is is absolutely fine they'll say look you know the science isn't really complete we need to do more research we can make the food healthy mm. and it's mm-hmm. all done through these sort of secondary organizations anyway there's look yeah. you're completely right the, the number one thing that needs to change is the um is is changing the culture around how we interact with the food industry and as i see it if you're if you're interested in child health and adult health and diet related disease and you're campaigning about that you have to be absolutely free from food industry Mm. money yeah and that actually carries on into other charities i know other health charities who take a lot of money from pharma for example and that then influences which drug protocols they're recommending on their you know takeaway sheets for for people affected by that particular condition that the charity is um is raising awareness of i mean it's and of course, when you look at the top of the pyramid, if you like, that the links between food and pharma, they're very often the same parent companies, aren't they? The same organisations. There's huge overlap between the, these are very large transnational corporations with very diversified interests. Often they're just sort of conglomerates. And we see this across industries. You know, all our public health messaging around alcohol is more or less controlled by the alcohol industry. So if you look at your <laughs> bottles of booze, you'll see it says drink responsibly or drink aware is the campaign. Now, if your cigarette packet said smoke responsibly, we would think it was bizarre. What had to happen with smoking and all the, there has been inadequate progress, but there has been progress, is the first thing was that all the doctors and all the charities started to refuse tobacco money. And then then progress happened. And until until we frame particularly obesity as a commerciogenic disease, as a disease caused by, by the companies that make the food, we will not solve the problem in in my view okay chris stay right there we will come back in just a moment there is still so much about ultra processed foods that we need to interrogate deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now, just before we get back into today's show, I wanted to remind you to check out the Desert Island Dishes podcast hosted by Margie Nomura. Each episode, Margie interviews high-profile guests about their seven Desert Island dishes, uncovering the food experiences that have shaped who they are today. I was a guest way back in 2018. Gosh, I can't believe that. 2018. Well, if you're curious to know more about how I founded my brands and which dishes I would want with me on a desert island, do scroll back in the feed and have a listen to that one. I'll give you a second to guess which food came top of my list. Okay, think creamy, gut-friendly, Yeah, okay. Kefir. I am the kefir queen, after all. Well, you can find Desert Island Dishes wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go take a listen after today's show. I was really interested by something you touched on earlier, and I I read it in the book. I have to say I'm not brave enough to have yet done it. I'm still considering it as the experiment when you decided to eat an 80% UPF diet. You know, we'll talk about the, the, the facts and the figures in a moment, but how did that actually make you feel physically and mentally? There was, so I, 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 I did this to get pilot data for a much bigger study that we're now running. I ate 80% UPF for a month. That's a very normal diet for a teenager, by the way. It was not an extreme diet and I wasn't force feeding myself. I was just switching to getting most of my calories from that. Three main things happened. I gained so much weight that if I'd continued on the diet, I would have doubled my body weight in a year. What? I mean, incredible weight rate of weight gain for all because the food is engineered to be consumed to excess. You know, my daughter, yeah. Lyra, is uh, now she's almost six. She can eat three adult servings of most junky breakfast cereals without without yeah. feeling full. So the second thing is we measured now, obviously, when you do these experiments, whether you're doing them for a book or television, you can fake them and and people might worry about that. Now, what you can't mm. fake is your blood hormone response to a meal. Mm-hmm. We At the beginning of the test, we fed me a, a, a standardized meal of a certain number of calories when we measure hunger hormones and fullness hormones. And after that, my, my fullness hormones went up, my hunger hormones went down. At the end of four weeks, my response to the, the after that standard meal, my hunger hormones remained sky high. So this is food wow. that... You were still hungry. For reasons, yeah. And not just saying I was hungry, my blood hormones showed that I was not full. You were really feeling hungry. So, wow. so you know, this is food that is interfering with our ability to, to regulate calorific intake. And we humans do have an ability to stop eating. We do have these hormone systems. Um, mm-hmm. It's just if you, you have to put the right inputs in. Um, and then we did a brain scan, which showed all this increasing connectivity between the addiction bits of my brain, the reward bits and the habit forming automatic behavior bits at the back of the brain. So we don't understand what that means. People will say, well, you're just one patient. But these changes were very, very significant. And we repeated the scan a number of weeks later. And it was done with the, you know, my colleagues at, at Queen's Care at the, the National Neurology Hospital. So the the, the those data are quite robust and they do chime with what we see in in real life 
um, studies of addiction to food is that that there are very significant brain changes. If that happens to me, um, you know, in my 40s, eating this food for a month, mm -hmm. there are really serious concerns about yeah. kids who, who grow up on more or less nothing but UPF. Mm, absolutely. And in terms of mental health, you know, we are now so affected by this enormous level of, of mental health this crisis, this legacy, you know, left over from lockdown and from so many other things, you know, did you find that you were thinking in a different way that, you know, you're, you're, there was a, an issue with your mental capacity or with your mood? Very much so. And of course, at the time, I don't know if you, you noticed this, when we're in a bad mood or we're feeling anxious or miserable, we often aren't able to locate the exact reason. It seems it's, you know, I would often think it was stress at work or the kids were misbehaving and I'd shout at the kids. When mm. I stopped the diet, my kids mm -hmm. didn't change their behavior, but I stopped shouting at them. So oh, it's, wow. we know from the data that this is food that's associated with anxiety and depression. We don't really know what that is. It might be because it's food that drives weight gain. It's food that gives you piles. It makes you dehydrated. It might be direct mm. effects of certain additives on the brain or the fact that you've just eaten too much. It's hard to disentangle where the anxiety and depression is coming from. But almost as soon as I stopped eating it, all those feelings went away. I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't sleep very well because you you overeat it's full of salt you're thirsty you're constipated you wake up in the night and the solution to waking up in the night of course is to eat more food because it's it feels like the solution not the problem itself so mm. it's it you can end up i ended up at the end of the day once i'd quit and felt so much better mm -hmm. i was like wow most of the problems of sort of what we might call western industrialized life yeah. seem to be associated you know our our bowel problems our inflammation our our, our, our misery you, you yeah. could say how much of that is due to the fact that we most of our calories come from this stuff that isn't really food wow chris i mean this is really this is really quite harrowing stuff and if you think on a broader societal level you think about family breakdowns if you think about aggressive violent behavior think about domestic abuse think about you know child abuse you know even just you know, kind of small things like shouting at your kids or shouting at your spouse that might then lead to a you know a bust up you know these these are potentially are are huge it's much much more than than just quote just obesity i think bringing that kind of societal perspective in is is really important we are a nation of traumatized sort of exhausted people that the inequalities in this country are vast, much bigger than in other equivalent countries that we think we're similar to. Yes, it is the most disadvantaged people that have to eat this food. So, you know, many of your listeners will be able to, for example, buy my book, eat along, become disgusted, quit the food, enjoy sourdough, you know, and they may have come yes. from, you know, they may just need to tweak their habits and they're, probably mm -hmm. they're not eating very, you know, listeners might not be eating very much anyway. The people, of course, who are really affected by this around the world yeah. are disenfranchised people, people of mm -hmm. colour, indigenous communities, people without houses. Um, yeah, low income, right. people without kitchens, the ability to cook, Entirely. haven't grown up with, with any cooking in their family, aren't aware of how to do it. And and that so, or access to fresh food. I mean, that, you know, so that's such an important point that you know, load. You know, many many people in this country don't have a fridge, don't have a stove, don't have knives. Yeah. They cook everything on a <laughs> on a in a in a microwave, yeah. um, and they can't batch cook and deep freeze in in Tupperware mm. like like many of us <laughs> can. And mm. and I'm my book in in a weird way is is sort of a book about luck that I didn't choose to be born into the family I'm born in or the country I'm born in. It's just through sort of blind good luck that I have, mm -hmm. I am not forced to eat this. And in the States, it's even worse. Yeah. And yeah. part of the project is going, we, if all we did was deal with the injustice in society and, and solved poverty and inequality, both quite solvable problems, actually, they're not they, they, they require a bit of will and a bit of money, but the, the, in, the, in the long term, it would be very cheap to solve them, much cheaper than having them continue. If we solve those problems, most of the problem of ultra processed food would go away because the truth is when people have money, they choose not to buy very much of this. Now that yes. we all do buy it because of because it's sold to us all as organic and vegan and, and associated <laughs> with weight loss. So no, no one is free from mm. it. 
but the, the, disproportionately the people who are affected are people on low incomes. Just, I just want to finish off that little bit about the brain. Thinking ahead, you know, I'm thinking about you know elderly parents now, and and this aging population, and this catastrophic rise in cognitive disability and and Alzheimer's, dementia. Is there a, a link between UPFs and something like dementia? So there is one reasonably good study linking ultra processed food to dementia. Now, it, it's it, these kind of studies are very hard to do. But it, it, there is there are, there there is some basics. So there's an epidemiological link where if we do some statistics and look at population data, that the two seem to be associated. Whether it's that low-income people who also smoke and 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 maybe have a higher alcohol intake are eating more UPF and 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 it's not causing it isn't quite clear. But the statisticians are very good at trying to adjust for those, and it does look like UPF is an independent risk factor. And there are some early studies that some of the chemicals like acrylamide which come out of uh, things in high temperature cooking and some of the plastics may be associated with brain inflammation and we know also this is food mm. that is pro-inflammatory so it it makes it's not surprising in a way that the food causes such a range of effects because the root the root pathology is often the same in a way it would be quite weird if the diet caused strokes and heart attacks but didn't also cause dementia it's this is food that is, right. is very likely to be inflaming the entire body. And you're essentially building your cells and your tissues out of molecules that you don't really find very much in nature. Mm -hmm. So there are, I think, real reasons to be concerned about that. Yeah. Interesting you talk about things that you don't find in nature. The first book that I wrote was called Vital Oils 30 odd years ago. And that was the one that I was nearly sued by a famous margarine manufacturer, you know, for daring to suggest that hydrogenated trans fats could potentially be damaging to health. Liz, I didn't know you'd written that so <laughs> yeah, you yeah. must know the work of hugh mcdonald sinclair you you yeah and, and um yeah. all the early work it's, on the horse i mean it's the the, the truth that's kind of what 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 led me into writing about health and nutrition in in the early days because i was just fascinated by hydrogenation and and how that could possibly be bad for us and why you know butter was being so demonized and of course you focus also on the whole story of the making of fake butter which was music to my ears to read it or music to my eyes <laughs> it was it was um that was in a way the most interesting chapter to read because it's a historical chapter about how mm the German Nazi war machine in, in the Second World War made fake butter from coal. But it felt like a really important way of explaining the logic of UPF, which is that it is not about nutrition. It is about economics and the, the mere sort of sustenance of life. I mean, the trans fat campaigners like you are the reason that now trans fats aren't in our diet. And so it was a relatively small group of people who weren't captured mm. by the food industry, like you, who saved, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you probably save 100,000 lives a year, possibly oh, more. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, <laughs> and so it's, it's, a, it's such well, a powerful example of... I was I was one of many, but I was very passionate about it and still am. Oh, and you know, and I, people got vilified and sued and you were painted it. as yeah. hippies yeah, yeah. and anti-science. Yeah, I, you know, yeah, not a doctor. What do you know what you're talking right. about? You know, just, and you're, you're just, you know, a young woman, you know, get back in your box. Yeah. So it's so, so interesting that you've been... I, 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 I'll order. Can I get an old copy of Vital? <laughs> of course, it's been out of print for a long time, and it's probably been way superseded. But, no, I can but, get you know, it. Look here, I found it online. I'm going to get it. No at way. Well, the books. There's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight books. How, how much is uh, it? Twelve. No, it's, it's it's actually quite expensive. No, it's probably about thirty p, isn't it? Probably, I should think. Oh, I found but... one for two pounds seventy three. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I mean, you know, there has to be activism. You know, the mm, industry mm -hmm. and the food industry, I spent a lot of time talking to people in the food industry and they want to change. And people in the food industry, there are several examples at Pepsi and Danon of mm. executives going, no, we must do things differently. And as they try, the share price plummets and they get fired by activist investors. <sighs> so people within yeah. the food industry, you know, they say, look, the purpose of the companies is to make money. Unless we are regulated, mm. we have to sell, whether it's trans fats or ultra processed mm. food and so so it's it's activism that will change it and and at the moment our activism is kind of fake activism where many of our activists are fundamentally funded by the food industry 
Well, is it kind of controlled opposition? Yeah, and you, you're not quite sure, you know, who, who the white hats are and which ones you should be supporting. I, talking about the industry, I've heard it said that UPF's additives are deliberately addictive, that they are engineered and that the people who are putting them into formulations, because that's what these products are, basically just formulae, is there, are, are doing it deliberately because they know the effect that it's going to have, the deleterious effect. Is there any evidence of this? I, it depends what you mean by deliberately. So the, the food is, uh, I spoke to people who sold uh, nutritional bars at uh, sort of supermarket level, the kind of sales reps up to the people in the food labs developing the food up all the way to a CEO of one of the major ice cream companies and all the investment bankers that do everything in the middle. So I spoke to a lot of people mm. and everyone said the same thing. It's not that they are setting out to hurt you. It's that they're putting food through design processes where the thing they're looking for is food that's really delicious and that people eat lots of. And after, you know, most of our breakfast cereals, our popular breakfast cereals were developed 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And so they've been through these design processes again and again and again. And each time they get a little bit more edible. They add a, a little bit more flavoring. They adjust, they add a bit more salt, a bit more acid to cut the sugar. And that allows a bit more sugar. And then you add a bit more acid. So they're, they're reformulating. It gets softer, but there's a little bit of crunch still. And mm -hmm. you end up with a food you can't stop eating. And no one's set yeah. out to deliberately drive obesity. There is a school of thought, of course, that um, people who live with obesity do eat more because your metabolism goes up when you gain weight. Um, I don't think the project is that cynical. No, no one at a food company's gone, look, if we can make everyone gain weight in 10 years' time, the share price will be higher. What, what... And we'll have to sell them some drugs well... from our parent company to, to put them right <laughs> or, you know, to cure the diabetes that we've given them or the dementia. I mean, what, what, what lots of the food companies do is they will sell their luxury products that drive weight gain uh, that they'll call luxury and then they'll also sell you the weight loss products which mm -hmm. also probably drive weight gain um so yes there's definitely a kind of eat me drink me process going on i mean the the, the certainly the, while i was writing the book there was a failed attempt by a food company to buy the diet related disease drug division of a very major pharmaceutical company so in other words they were going to buy all those indigestion drugs and the uh, you know right. the, the pills we take yes. you know the anti-acid stuff um yeah. so that's the ultimate loop of being a conglomerate or a diversified transnational food corporation is you want to create and solve the problem and yes, make, make you... money from both income streams. And that's yes. that's fair enough. That's what I'd do if I were the CEO <laughs> of one of these companies. Uh, that's why I'm not a CEO of one of these companies. But that's yeah. why they need regulation. They're fundamentally monopolistic yes. and, and government has to act. And it's hard to know about them because they're also very secretive. I, I remember talking to Joanna Blytheman, investigative journalist, mm. who wrote a brilliant book mm. years ago called Swallow This, mm. which was all, again, about you know processed foods. I'm sure you know it. And she managed to, to infiltrate one of the food industry conferences, which are hugely secret. And I think it was in Switzerland or somewhere. It's where all the, the manufacturers of the additives mm. go to. So you get the food industry representatives going, oh, show me your latest emulsifier and you know how could I use it and what could I put it in? And she said it was absolutely astonishing, the sales pitch from, from companies that would say, you know, we've tested this and we've, you know, we know it to be highly addictive and we know that it will keep your customers coming back when wanting, wanting to buy more, eat more. I have a friend who refused to be interviewed for the book and I won't, I've got to be a bit careful what I disclose mm. here, but they had worked at a major food company in both the pet food division and in the human food division. Right. And a lot of the flavorings that end up in the human Gosh. food are trialed first in the pet division. And there's, <laughs> okay. you know, because the pet division is a great way yeah. of generating all this data. So, you know, th yeah. this, th this huge overlap between the two industries. I mean, I love you bringing up this ingredients layer because we're all familiar with there are sort of 10 or 12 companies that make most of our food in this country and really around the world. Um, mm. There are then four companies that really make all the ingredients for those 12 companies and interposed between them. There are these these other much uh, less well-known entities that provide all these flavor and additive molecules. And you can think about this food supply system as bringing food to your table. That is one way of thinking about it. The way the bankers explained it to me is it's an inverted money supply chain. 
So it's not bringing food to you. A little bit of food arrives with you, but that's a byproduct of its method for extracting money from you and distributing it to the shareholders of the, the intermediate companies. And hardly any, of course, ends up trickling down to the people who actually farm. Yes. And once yes. you understand the food industry as a set of companies that behave a lot like banks specialising in food commodities, that reveals them to be not concerned with human nutrition. And and the way the companies are positioning themselves is very clever and they're, they're doing it skillfully through things like the British Nutrition Foundation. There's this idea of stakeholder capitalism. So we, we, we're not just interested in our shareholders, we're really invested in everyone who's, you know, in, 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 in minority groups and we're interested in people who live with diet-related disease and we, there are all these stakeholders yeah, yeah, and we, yeah. can, we can do it all. And what the evidence shows us, and this is work I'm... I'm doing with some colleagues in uh, around the world is that these are companies who um, are paying less and less tax uh, and are doing more and more share buybacks mm -hmm. and they're they're really really delivering shareholder value absolutely above every single other activity. Yeah, which of course is their reason for for being. They're not charities. They are they are money making corporations on on a massive scale. And it's interesting. I think I guess parallels here with the drug industry. But looking at how these additives, I guess, get uh, allowed in the first place. You know, looking at the role of say the FDA in America, the Food and Drug Administration, the the UK FSA. And I'm familiar from my past life you know, making skincare and working with ingredients with the notion of something being grass, G-R-A-S, mm. generally oh, recognised yeah. as safe, G-R-A-S, which is a labelling term which says, we don't think this is dangerous. It's generally recognised as safe, G-R-A-S. So therefore, you're allowed to put it into a face cream or you're allowed to put it into a, a food product. But that's a bit woolly, isn't it? The fact that it's generally recognised as safe when it comes to food surely so, isn't a high enough bar. Well, it, this was my favourite chapter of the book to write because I I assumed, because I've done a lot of work with pharmaceutical regulation, which is sort of bureaucratic and tedious, but for various uh, bits of research, I've, I've, I've had to get to understand it. So I thought food additives were regulated like drugs, but partly because in the States, they're regulated by the same agency. Um with this grass determination, so you, it, let's say you, Liz, invent some new molecule and you want to put it in a food, there are three things you can do. You can, first of all, you could apply like a drug to the FDA and get it fully licensed. They'll ask for all this animal data and human testing studies and you'll mm. do a full submission, take about three years. Or you can self-determine. So you can say, well, our in-house scientists think mm. it's safe and uh, you can you can write that to the FDA. And the FDA may write back and go, mm, we're not sure about this. Or you can do this thing that, and I didn't believe this was true. So I cleared this with a, with a Harvard law professor and two kind of incredible food academics who, who understand food policy and who are currently uh, bringing kind of legal action about all this. Um, you can do this thing called secret mm. grass where you just decide it's safe and you don't what? tell the FDA. And secret you stick grass? It, you just do it, stick it in the food anyway. So there is... The way it was explained to me is in the United States, there is no functional regulation of food additives. Now, in, in uh, I've written an entire chapter basically just explaining mm. there isn't really anything to explain. There is there is no real regulation. There's a yes. bit of kind of the really big companies do try and play it fairly straight because they don't want to. There's a there's a reputational thing if they're putting real toxins in. But for the no name brands that lots of people with low incomes have to buy mm. there really is very little regulation or, or essentially functionally none now in europe and in the uk there's there's really good regulation so we've got the european food standards agency and the, and, and the fsa in the uk but what those agencies don't test for is the long-term effects of particularly combinations of additives so if you read yes. the efsa reports we know that the additives aren't immediately toxic and they won't cause birth defects. What we never study, because it's hard to do so and it's expensive, we don't know about their effects on metabolic health, on obesity, yeah. on the microbiome, on our endocrine systems. And there is now mm -hmm. pretty good lab evidence, I think, that for some of these things, you know, the emulsifiers and their effect on weight gain and the microbiome, uh, is the jury in? No. Should we all be terrified of emulsifiers? No. But is there enough evidence that we should be concerned and really be doing much more work? Yeah, there, there really is. And it's published in, in good journals. So we're not looking at these 
these the, the long-term combination of molecules we also don't look much at the migratory plastic stuff you know what happens when yes. you leave stuff in the well microwave. that's a whole other other story please come back and let's let's talk about packaging because that is a whole other thing and i guess you know in trying to simplify it you know it, it's going to be very hard to pick apart all these different combination of molecules and the, and the, the complex way they're put together but something as simple as saying look for the word emulsifier on a pack because if it's got that as one of its many many ingredients at least that's a slight clue isn't it that it's something that shouldn't be ending up in your shopping trolley i think that uh, i i started to read ingredients for the first time when i when i began sort of looking at ultra processed foods and it kind of amazed me that as a doctor and a broadcaster, I had never, ever read an ingredients list. So mm. most of the time it's written on the food. What you will, I believe, if you if you kind of engage with the project of, of the book and you're interested in this, and, and I think a lot of your listenership are probably doing this already. Yeah. You'll yeah. just find you stop buying food with lists of ingredients. I mean, I... Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of almost stopped reading ingredients because I just don't buy that stuff anymore. The, the, where you will be tripped up is you'll be buying peanut butter and it'll have palm oil in it and it will say that right. it's organic yeah. and natural. Or you'll buy, you know, yeah. some some nuts and they'll be covered in maltodextrin and flavour enhancers. But, but br- broadly, just reading ingredients, w- what I want to do with people is not give people orthorexia, not give people an anxiety about their diets. You know, if yeah, you are you. basically mm-hmm. well and you eat real mm-hmm. food and you, you you know please don't worry about this if you recognize you're addicted do read the ingredients lists and um try and be a bit of a philosopher about your food you know what's the purpose mm. of the food you're buying was it created by uh, a massive international conglomerate answerable to a pension fund if so it's probably <laughs> been engineered to take more from you than it gives to you but if it's food yeah. made by your local restaurant, I mean, we've got a pizzeria near just around the corner from me and I still get takeaway mm. pizza. It's got six mm-hmm. ingredients. It's totally delicious. You feel full at Love the end it. of it. You know, you can still eat pizza. You Love just it. shouldn't buy the frozen one. <laughs> Chris, that's a really positive note to end on. Thank <laughs> eat you pizza. so much. <laughs> eat pizza, says the doctor. Uh, your book is brilliant. Your work is amazing. All power and oh, credit to you. Well, and that I means a lot to... coming from you. It really, it really well, does. Seriously, I I will be there waving your flag um, any day of the week. Thank you very much for your time today. Such a pleasure. Nice to speak to you. Well, well, that phrase, food for thought, has never felt more apt. A huge thank you for your time and expertise again, Chris, and for putting your body through so much for the sake of science. Well, if you head to lizardwellbeing.com, you can always find lots of recipes that are so delicious. I promise that you won't miss a single one of those UPFs. Well, will you be making a conscious effort to read your food labels after hearing from Chris? Do let me and the team know we're on social media at Liz Earl Wellbeing. I am at Liz Earl Me. And just after the recording, Chris and I swapped our Twitter handles. We are going to be following and supporting each other. So perhaps see us over in the Twitter sphere if you would like to join in that conversation. And another conversation that I absolutely loved having all about decluttering was with the wonderful Dilly Carter a couple of weeks ago. And Beryl has been in touch to say, if only I could persuade my husband that this is not female nonsense, clutter makes me scream internally. Well, no, of course, this isn't female nonsense at all. Get him to listen to Dilly's episode because it really is all about our mental well-being. Nikki wrote in to say, I want to declutter. But my husband will keep everything. I met him 25 years ago and he has a brand new pair of boots in a box, never worn, still have them. I throw things away and he will get them out of the recycling or bin again. Hmm, I'm sensing a bit of a theme here. Well, thank you as always for getting involved in the conversation. Well, I'll be back next week, but I wonder if you would like to listen to the next and all future episodes ad-free. Well, for a very small monthly fee, you can. You can listen ad-free to all the episodes when you subscribe to the Liz Earl Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts. And once you're a subscriber, you also get 24-hour early access to each and every episode as well. So until the next time we chat, go very well. Bye-bye.
The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.